My friends, next week, the Jewish community will usher in the festival of Passover. And in connection with the exodus from Egypt, we read about the ten plagues that God visited upon the ancient Egyptians. The ninth plague, we are told, was the plague of darkness. A darkness so thick that the Bible says they saw not one another. And the darkness from which the ancient Egyptians suffered was a special kind of darkness. It was not a darkness that affected the eyes, but it was a darkness that affected the heart. Physically, they were able to see, but they did not feel for each other. They did not care for one another. That is what the Bible means when it says they saw not one another. They were blind to each other's needs. Each person saw only him or herself. And that is the worst plague of all. Many of us feel that a plague of darkness has now engulfed our American society. America was the laboratory for the great experiment where disparate cultures and races and ethnicities were all welcome to enter, to settle, and build families, companies, and communities. And now we find our cities, which were once sought after as hotbeds of opportunity and melting pots of diversity, have devolved into racial pressure cookers where too many streets and jobs and lives have met a dead end. The great American experiment, diversity and tolerance in American life, have we glamorized the past, is our sense of foreboding for the future of our country warranted, or will the American dream be fulfilled as we remove the darkness from our midst and keep aglow the light of understanding and caring, which enables us to truly see each other. And we have three distinguished personalities to address this issue. And it now gives me great pleasure to ask them to join us here at the podium.
This evening, we will be hearing from three great Americans, leaders of their respective uh, ethnic communities. And let me share with you what will be the format for this evening's program. I will be posing six questions to our panelists. The first question they will respond to here at the lectern. The other five we will have the discussion from the table for you. That part of the program should run about an hour and then we will have a half hour session of questions and answers from you, the audience. The first person to address our subject this evening is a noted author and lecturer, Betty Baldord, who lectures extensively about Chinese-American relations. The books that she has authored are world-renowned, including Legacies, a Chinese Mosaic, which was a bestseller by the New York Times. In 1984, in the year of the Boar and Jackie Robinson, which received the American Library Association Award. In 1981, Spring Moon, again a bestseller, New York Times. 1964, The Eighth Moon, which was published in 15 foreign editions. Uh, Betty Ballard has contributed to such leading journals and publications as Newsweek, New York Times, Los Angeles Times. Her national television appearances include CBS This Morning, CBS Evening News, Face the Nation, Good Morning America, she was the subject of a Barbara Walters interview on 2020, 1987. She has received so many distinguished awards and honorary doctorates, including from uh, University of Notre Dame, Tufts University, Bryan College. Gives me great pleasure to call upon Ms. Betty Ballard to respond to the following question. Our audience would be interested hearing you discuss your own personal journey in defining your particular cultural identity. How much of this definition evolves from having been discriminated against? And on the contrary, what positives do you contribute to your cultural heritage? Ms. Betty Ballord. In this era of the politically correct, I tremble to tell you about myself. While surely racism is the original sin that haunts the soul of America and the deadly cancer that threatens our body politic, 
I cannot claim that I, as an individual, have been a victim of discrimination. How come? This is an enigma to me as well. Perhaps it was pure luck that I number among the few who escape the psychological and material squalor that racism sows. Perhaps I was born blind and deaf to insult and injury. Perhaps it was because I grew up not rich, not poor, in the 50s, a more innocent time, and in the suburbs, a more sheltered place. Perhaps it was because I have wise parents who sacrificed all for my education, but who never taught me that the loss of one's native culture is the price one must pay for becoming an American. Perhaps above all, it is because I'm an immigrant who, like immigrants before me, believe that America is truly the land of opportunity. My voyage to the New World began in the autumn of 1946. I was eight years old, sporting pigtails, armed with not even a passing acquaintance of A, B, or C. Only yesterday, resting my chin on the rails of that ship, I peered longingly into the mist for Meiguo, beautiful country. It refused to appear. Then, within a blink, there before me, sailing through gossamer clouds, was the Golden Gate, more like the portals to heaven than the arches of a man-made bridge. Only yesterday, standing alongside my classmates at PS number eight in Brooklyn, I stared at the stars and stripes to proclaim, I pledge a lesson to the frog of the United States of America. And to the wee puppets, for witches' hands, one Asian in the vestibule with little tea and just rice for all. Only yesterday, rounding third base, I swallowed a barrel full of tears, wondering what wrong I had committed to anger my teammates so. Why were they all madly screaming for me to go home, go home? <laughs> Only yesterday, listening to Red Barber, broadcasting from Ebbets Field, I vaulted over the Milky Way as my hero, Jackie Robinson, stole home. These yesterdays were no illusion. They number among the rights that bind me irrevocably to this great nation. Telling this most sophisticated audience what must sound like a fairy tale makes me feel like one of the seven dwarfs, dopey. And yet, this is my life. Perhaps looking at America through rose-colored glasses tinted red, white, and blue is a natural contrast to the life I might have led had I never left China 46 years ago. During that time, I might have been a victim of the constant campaigns to crush independent thought and the worth of the individual. I might have been a victim to the great leap forward 
that starved over 20 million to death. I might have been a victim of the cultural revolution that the Chinese dub their Holocaust. I might have been a victim of the tanks that rolled into Tiananmen Square. My writings testify to my love for the Chinese people and my hatred for the system that rules them. My respect for the Confucian culture that exalts family, learning, the middle way, and harmony. My contempt for class struggle, mass movements, ideology, and isms. In my old country, mistakes, be they petty or profound, are the makings of tragedy. But here, at least for me, and thus far, mistakes have been the markings on the path to expanded horizons and self-discovery. Tonight, by sitting on this panel, I am forced to put into words sentiments that only the mighty pen of Jefferson and Lincoln should express. In my new world, I make mistakes and get a second chance. In my new world, I speak my mind and cannot be silenced or shut up. In my new world, I can be as different as only sisters and brothers are, for I am an equal member of the same proud family. I believe pride in being an American and pride in our cultural heritages are not only complementary, but the unique dynamic force that makes America a nation greater than the sum of its parts. I believe America should not be divisible by ethnic enclaves, nor should the rights of any American be deductible. I believe Americans' greatness is measured in the quality of life of all Americans, as individuals, as members of the majority and minorities, as members of a common family. America is my home. A home, no doubt, where skeletons nest in closets and the roof leaks, where foundations must be shored and rooms added, but a home like no other, one that welcomes dreamers as individuals and blesses diverse dreams. Perhaps I'm just a pathological optimist, but the journey we immigrants make, be it a single step across the border or a voyage halfway across the world, marks us far more indelibly than the cast of our features, the lilt of our speech, or even our mysterious familiarity with alien ways that we have never been taught. We who have sworn an allegiance to the flag at naturalization ceremonies in courthouses august and quaint feel privileged. What natives never question, we deliberate upon, then affirm by raising of our right hand. Thus, in spite of all our incendiary problems and intractable fears, I have faith, not in the Chinese, but the American dream. For here, legacies, not of gold and silver, but as intangible as laughter and hope, 
are tendered from generation to generation to have and to hold. Thank you. The uh, gentleman in me always believes in ladies first, and now we'll go in alphabetical order. <laughs> Herman Badillo was born in Puerto Rico and came to New York City at the age of 11. He was educated in Puerto Rico and New York City public schools he graduated magna cum laude from City College of New York with a Bachelor of Business Administration degree and cum laude from Brooklyn Law School in 1954, where he was class valedictorian and was a member of the Law Review and Moot Corps team. In November of 1962, Mr. Badillo was appointed commissioner of the New York City Department of Housing Relocation, thus becoming the first full commissioner of Hispanic origin in the history of the city of New York. In 1965, he was elected borough president of the Bronx and again became the first borough president of Hispanic origin in the history of the city of New York. In 1970, Mr. Badillo ran and was elected to Congress from the 21st Congressional District, and once again became the first congressman of Puerto Rican origin in the history of our nation. In January 1978, he was appointed Deputy Mayor of New York City by then Mayor Edward I. Koch. Today, Mr. Badillo is a full-time practicing attorney in the law firm of Fishbein Badillo, and among his many, many activities, he is also the chairman of the board of directors of station WJITAM, a Spanish radio station in New York City. I now invite Herman Badillo to come to the lectern to discuss with us your own personal journey in defining your particular cultural identity. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Herman Badillo. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to congratulate you for your very perceptive question because unfortunately, most of the time, people seem to assume that everyone uh, from a particular group has the same background. And I must tell you that in the Puerto Rican and Hispanic community, and I believe in other communities as well, a lot depends on how people grew up and where they were when they grew up. I grew up in a small city in Caguas, Puerto Rico, uh, which uh, is in the center of the island. And I, as a young man, I saw that the teachers were Puerto Rican, and the policemen were Puerto Rican, and the firemen were Puerto Rican, and the merchants were Puerto Rican, and the bankers were Puerto Rican, and that the mayor was Puerto Rican, and the judges were Puerto Rican, and the governor was Puerto Rican. In other words, I grew up in a society where I was part of the majority. 
And I grew up in a society where I saw that Puerto Ricans, and we have Puerto Ricans of all backgrounds, white and black and mixed and uh, Protestant and Catholic and Jewish, that Puerto Ricans can run a whole society. And uh, as Freud indicated, if you are not discriminated against till you're 11 years old, it's going to be hard for you to believe that you're inferior after you're 11 years old. And therefore, when I came here, I didn't think that I was different from anybody else. And I still can't understand why we have a category of majority and minority in this country. Although I immediately saw that in this country you are judged to a large extent by the color of your skin. There is discrimination against groups, Jews, Italians, Irish, but it doesn't compare to the discrimination that uh, exists on the grounds of color. Uh, those Puerto Ricans, for example, who are perceived as white will have some discrimination, but they are still considered part of the white majority. Those who are perceived as black, even if they learn to speak English and get a good education, will still be considered black. The Puerto Ricans who are mixed have a big problem because they'll go to a cocktail party and some people will treat them as white and some people will treat them as black. And there's a big difference and they can tell uh, what the reaction is. So uh, we understand a lot of what goes on, but the tragedy and the importance of having knowing where the people's background is, is that the Puerto Ricans and Hispanics who were born in New York City belong to this society and don't understand that they don't have to consider themselves part of a majority and minority culture. They don't see the role models that I saw uh, when I was president of the Bronx. And by the way, that's another ex example. I ran for borough president of the Bronx and I defeated the famous Charlie Buckley organization. And I ran against the Buckley organization because told Mr. Buckley, who was then a very powerful congressman, that I wanted to run for borough president. He said, uh, you can't, we can't support you because you're too tall to be a Puerto Rican. We're going to have a Puerto Rican running for borough president. We want someone who looks like a Puerto Rican, who's short and dark and can't speak English. So I beat the Buckley organization. Uh, but this is the attitude that uh, exists. And I was remember when my friend Felipe Luciano uh, and the young lords took over the Spanish Methodist Church on 110th Street in Lexington. Uh, I was appointed to help them out. And I say, you guys aren't really dangerous. I'm the guy that's dangerous. Because you take over the Spanish Methodist Church. And of course, you make the front pages of all the newspapers. But try taking over St. Patrick's Cathedral, and then you'll see how long you last. If you want to take over City Hall, as I do, then you are dangerous. But so long as you stick within your group, there is no problem at all. Now, um, the reality is that uh, there's a big difference in how the world is perceived by the same people depending upon where they grew up. One point, when I was president of the Bronx, I started what is known as Operation Reverse Peace Corps. I had Puerto Ricans from Puerto Rico come to the South Bronx. At one time, I had a uh, Puerto Rican architect, an engineer, and a surveyor to show that they built 20-story buildings in Puerto Rico because the Puerto Ricans who were in the South Bronx had never seen Puerto Rican architect, surveyor, or engineer. And this is the problem, that people who grow up in our society have a different perception about what goes on. And it is very difficult to 
establish relations among groups when this thing happens. Uh, one of the things that I've done, and I don't want to take up too much time, uh, but I'll answer questions, is you read the census, you will see that it says uh, white, black, Hispanic. And you wonder, why should it say Hispanic? I mean, it's like saying men, women, and other people. But the reason for that is that when I went into politics, they just, just had white and black. And this is the problem of this country, that you're either white or black, and you can't be anything else. And I set up the category, I got together with the Census Bureau, and I set up the category of Hispanic. Because in one real sense, we are a long way ahead of the people in this country because we don't divide ourselves in that way. And I said, I want the Hispanic community to not get involved in whether you are white or black, but call yourself Hispanic because we don't gain anything by breaking ourselves up into one group or the other. And maybe if we stick to just being Hispanics and refuse to break ourselves up in, into categories, we might be able to contribute to racial harmony in this country, which I believe is the most important domestic problem that we have. Thank you. Stanley Crouch was born in California from 1965 to 1967. He worked as an actor and a writer in the Watts Repertory Theater Company uh, in California, in a number of communities and colleges throughout California. From 1968 to 1975, he taught at the Claremont Colleges, beginning as poet-in-residence at Pitzer College, moving on to become the first full-time faculty member of the Claremont Colleges Black Studies Center. And while he was at Claremont Colleges, he wrote and directed nine plays. In 1975, Mr. Crouch moved to New York and was soon writing for the Village Voice and the Soho Weekly News. In 1980, he became a staff writer for the Village Voice. And in 1988, he began writing for the New Republic and became a contributing editor of the New Republic in 1990. In 1987, he began serving as artistic consultant to Lincoln Center's Classical Jazz Summer Series. His 1990 book of essays and reviews, Notes of a Hanging Judge, was hailed by the New York Times as one of the most notable books of the year and was nominated for an award in criticism by the National Book Critics Circle. I will now invite Stanley Crouch to share with us uh, your experiences in discussing your own personal journey in defining your particular cultural identity. Ladies and gentlemen, Stanley Crouch. Uh, 
I think my cultural identity is uh, still being developed. Um, I think that one of the fundamental problems in the United States is that uh, we, many of us are confused about identity and uh, oftentimes due to whatever the political current of the moment is, we find ourselves caught having to make a decision of whether or not we will vote for what the new what the new idea about the particular group we happen to be in is. For instance, um, it strikes me as rather strange that you have people running around in New York who know 50 words of Italian and refer to themselves as Italians. I don't understand that. Or you've got um, people in Brooklyn, say, who will get uh, some Kenty cloth and uh, uh, walk around calling themselves Africans. They don't know any African languages. You know, they don't know, they don't have any particular place in Africa that they can say that they came from, but they'll call themselves Africans and so on. So I think that there's a, but a lot of that has to do with what some, with the way that people get manipulated, it seems to me, by different trends that are based upon selling a, some kind of an ethnic occupation at a given time. And, it, it, and we've seen over the last 20 years that a number of people want, uh, ethnic franchises, that is, uh, when, now, and since, the, and since the women's movement, you've also got gender franchises. So some people will say, well, only people from this group can criticize this or can teach this or should be able to represent this particular community or should have anything to say about it because anyone outside that particular group doesn't, or doesn't really know what this is. So, I mean, so that leads to uh, things like... Uh, uh, say black studies or certain kinds of things about black literature, say, or certain kinds of things about so-called uh, uh, Asian literature, Hispanic literature, et cetera. But, but, the, but the fundamental question of whether or not a story moves us or not is often set aside on the basis of whether or not it fits into a certain set of categories. Now, as a guy born in uh, Los Angeles in 1945, I distinctly recall uh, growing up and uh, having no problem whatsoever really identifying with uh, the Indians in a movie if the movie was pro-Indian, if with the cavalry if the if the movie was pro-cavalry, with Davy Crockett if it was Davy Crockett, with uh, Sidney Poitier if he was in something I liked him. So you know I was I, 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 so I I never really when I was a kid I didn't I didn't look go sit in a movie say or read a book and say, well as a person of uh, at least partial African descent. Of how should I look at this? I either I identified with the hero or I didn't. And so if I was reading uh, uh, the Iliad, the part I still have the same, my, the part I like in the Iliad today is still the same part that I liked when I was a teenager, which is the part where uh, Hector and a couple of guys are standing on the parapet and they're looking down there and they're talking about Achilles is this great warrior and he's really supposed to be tough and you got to watch out for that Achilles. So Priam walks up to them and he says, look, you're all punks. <laughs> you're out here talking about throwing spears. When I was a boy, we threw boulders at each other, you know. Now, see, that reminded me of the same kind of stuff that I used to hear in the barbershops, because whatever you, whatever you said was important, there would always be some guy who would jump up and say, look, boy, y'all don't know nothing about that. When I was a kid, and it would go on like that, you know, okay. So now it seems to me that, that and, I, and by, by no means am I arguing that, uh, 
different groups don't have particular kinds of cuisine, certain kinds of humor, uh, different little different little variations on courtship or their own slang or certain kinds of dances that they put together. But it seems to me that um, what is really important in the United States is, is, is far more often than not, you get an opportunity to really see how many things of human consequence can move you from people of groups that you that are, that are superficially different from your own and i think that um that that we're now in a time where the the real pressure on individuals to to uh submit to a certain kind of uh, of an order, an ethnic order, or a certain kind of political order, or as uh, Ms. Lord was talking about earlier, uh, some kind of political correctness, is, is kind of an irritation. But at the same time, I don't really think it's going to be much, I don't, I don't think it's going to be any more important than, say, some kind of uh, political hula hoop. I mean, that is that... Uh, if you were around at a certain time, you could you you might have thought that hula hoops would run run the world eventually, but you know I have a 14 year old daughter. She didn't even know what they were, and I think that uh, we we we're gonna get through everything that gets in the way of us expressing our, our fundamental humanity. And then, but the only way that we're going to do that is by recognizing the things that we always have to recognize. I mean, the, the, truly, the, the, true, the things of true human significance. I mean, we have to recognize that, you know, people have fallen in love. They always will. People uh, have, to, have, to, have to find out what the difference is between truth and lies. I mean, and in this country, perhaps the thing that we have to fight against most is... is is distortion. We have to fight against the the fact that there are very narrow definitions often of people in different groups. And what and but but at the same time, we have it seems to me in the Constitution a a document that um, I recently talked about in Harvard as a as what I call a blues document. That is, in the blues, the blues is a music that has what I call tragic optimism. Tragic by tragic optimism, I mean that blues does not deny all of the shortcomings that human beings are capable of, but it finally has an affirmative idea about the fact that things might not be as good as we'd like them, but we got to stick in there. So now the Constitution is is a very cynical document in a lot of ways because essentially the Constitution says, well, when people get power, you got to watch them, and you got to watch them closely. And you got to be sure that you're able to write things when people make them wrong. So that we have a we so so that we live in a society in which the whole proposition of say political redemption is always possible. That is that in the in the blues, so you play the blues to get rid of the blues. And what I was saying at Harvard recently is that, and that what the Constitution allows you to do is use government to get rid of the blues of government. That is so that when you have prejudicial policies, when you have slavery, when you have, when it's impossible for women to vote or for Indians to do this or certain people to do this or that, and that those things are in law, then that's the blues of government. So when you use government to change those policies, and that's what I mean by using government to, to get to rid yourself of the blues of government. And I think that if we really address those fundamental elements of, of, of the wonder of American society, I don't think we're going to I don't think that we're going to 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 experience any more real uh, balkanization 
of the sort that people that are super, that's superficially represented by whether it's a David Duke or a, an Al Sharpton or any of those kind of people. I think those people are kind of like uh, uh, political poison ivy. It's irritating for a little while, but I think that we, I think that in our souls we have the calamine lotion necessary to get rid of it. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to um, pose a few questions to our panel. I'd like uh, each one of you to briefly comment and respond to the questions. And if you could limit your response uh, to three minutes, be most uh, appreciative. And you can respond. Uh, from the table, the microphones are in front of you. Uh, we'll first uh, go with uh, Mr. Badillo. Let me share with you the question. This has been a terrible year for race relations in New York City as well as in, in many other American cities. How viable are American cities as a place where people can live together? Why does integration in schools, why does it seemingly not work? How can our schools foster cultural identity and understanding? And in what other ways can we teach tolerance? That is the most comprehensive of the four questions you're getting, Herman. But that is my first question to you. In three minutes, I'll answer them uh, completely. Uh, when I was housing commissioner, we found that if you get an apartment house and you get a certain percentage of uh, black people, you have a tipping point and everybody becomes black. We have too many poor people, we have too many black people and Hispanic people in the cities. And that's one of the difficulties in making them viable. And one of the main problems is the condition of the schools. In previous generations, people were able to move up by working with muscle. Today, you need to have an education to move up. And I found when I came here from Puerto Rico that America was very strange, because in, in Caguas, if you do your work, you pass. If you don't, you flunk. In New York City, if you do your work, you pass. If you don't do your work, you pass. Everybody <laughs> passes. And what happens is we have what is known as a social promotion standard that says that uh, it is sociologically bad for a child to be left behind. Therefore, you have to pass him even if he's not learning. But I say it's sociologically worse for a child to be 17 years old and not be able to read or write or speak. And what happens as a result of this standard is that people are put out into society technologically unqualified for the world in which we live. And if you have people who are not qualified for the world in which we live in the cities, cities are not going to be viable. Thank you. Benny? Um, I think sometimes we, ad I agree with you, I think education is key. I think sometimes we adults make it harder than it really is. Uh, it's like going to learn how to ski as an adult. It's impossible, at least for me. 
But you see those little kids, they slide down those slopes, and it's, it's marvelous. And in a way, I think we make too much of how hard it is for kids to go into school not knowing a language or not knowing a subject and providing them for, uh, with, with the education. For instance, I think up until about the age of 12, 12, I would say 10 to 11 or 12 might be the cutoff point. Most kids can pick up a language at school if they're among classmates who speak that other language in about two or three months. They do it all the time in, in Europe. I don't think Europeans are any uh, more uh, talented than we are. We make a big deal out of it. And in many ways, I feel that we have, as adults, because we cannot learn how to speak another language quickly and uh, absorb it, that we apply that same thought to our children. I think it's true. When I came here, we had smaller classes. I think one of the things we have to do is make sure that we have uh, a better education system. But Seriously, I didn't speak a word of English, and none, none, uh, not any of the children that I went to rapid English improvement spoke English. But we all spoke English after literally six months and without trouble. I think sometimes we we don't think that children can build up their self-esteem by doing things that are hard for them. We keep thinking that if we pet them on the back and say you're okay for no good reason at all, that they will have that self-esteem which we think is so important to their life. Thank you. Thank you. Stanley? Yeah, well, I, well the, the whole question of cultural identity I, uh, and the the role of the, the schools in that is, um, I think it's something that's overstated. And, uh, and that is, that is I would, you know, as a black American, the first, if, one of the things I have to address is that the, um, the, the moral ancestry of Afro-Americans, say it, like uh, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, those, those, those that, there, there is, that moral ancestry does not lead back to Africa. That is because Africans did not perceive other Africans that they were, in, that they were capturing and selling as slaves as other human beings. There was no abolition movement in Africa. Africans did not have a, there was no great debate among Africans themselves over the moral proposition of slavery. That, that's just not true. Now, uh, so, so the first question I have to raise, so what I would have to say is now, does that mean that Africans are innately inferior morally to, to uh, Europeans? Well, anybody who knows European history knows that you can't assume that, okay? <laughs> but at the same time, what, you know, the ideas that came from the Enlightenment, the, uh, the grand vision of the, of, the, of, the, of the Declaration of Independence, and what the, what the extraordinary suggestions of the, of the Constitution were, add up to a certain body of things connected to a sense of universal humanity, which has no real precedent in the history of the world. Now, one of the most remarkable things that has taken place in our time is that you can have people in a building not so very far from here called the UN 
sit there representing all these countries and whether or not the people who are representing each one of these countries actually believes it, they will give lip service to the idea that everyone in that country represents human communities all over the world. Now that's never happened before. It's never been true. It was never a time when you could have gotten somebody who represented pygmies and somebody who represented Italians and somebody who represented people in India, et cetera, and all of them in a room, and there was a general agreement that they were all human beings. Now, it seems to me that, that, that and I mean, that it really isn't, that's a very, very new thing. I mean, we take it for granted, but you study the history of the world, that is, that's a very recent event. You know what I mean? A lot of it has to do with the, with, with, with things that we have found out about the sciences, with blood transfusion. There are a lot of different elements that have, that have taken place that allow us to see people regardless of how removed they might be from us as human. And it seems to me that we, we, we get too far removed from that fundamental achievement too often. You know, like, for instance, see, I don't know what an Asian version of two plus two is. I just know it's a four. I don't know what the, what the, what the, what the Afrocentric version of three plus two is, you know, because if it's not five, then I'm not interested in it, you know. Now, now, I, now, I, now, now see, when I was going to school, there was, I could, you could never have said that you didn't do your work because you were from a single parent family. <laughs> you couldn't say you, you didn't do your homework because you looked at TV and you last night and you didn't see anybody on it that looked like you. Uh, you couldn't say, you know, I'm none of that. You know, I mean, the black teachers, the white teachers, the Mexican teachers, the Asian teachers, all they said, look, boy, do this work. That was the idea. And they had a certain standard that you couldn't get out of it with race. You couldn't say I'm too short to do it. You couldn't say I'm too tall to do it. You couldn't say any of that. None of that worked. They had a, those people were there on a, for, with a mission, and their mission was to make sure that you were as prepared as you possibly could be to, to discover out here in the world what you actually could do. And it seems to me that we're not going to get anything done in this society until we, until we return to that kind of a vision, because it works. I mean, it worked for me. It worked for, for Betty, it worked for Herman. I mean, in the ways, I mean, and, I mean, it, and this is, and believe me, this was not something uncommon in all of these so-called minority households. I mean, you know, you couldn't come up there and say, there's white people in school, that's why I can't do, didn't do my math. They said, boy, you better go back to school and do your work. You know, we didn't come, you know, we didn't come through all we came through for you to go up there and say, there's white people there, so I can. You know, that was never the thing. And finally, when I was a kid, the worst thing you could be was a racist. That was the lowest possible human definition you could have. In fact, there was an old, there's an old Southern saying that went, boy, if you want to hold a man down in a hole, you got to step down in that hole with him to keep him there, you know. Thank you. I, could I ask you something? Yes, ma'am. When you deliver that message, uh, say, at, uh, at some of the universities with, uh, with a black audience, what is the reaction that, that you get? Well, I mean, it depends. I, see, what happens is that you have a lot of, you have a lot of teachers who, who, who have, who have uh, kowtowed to yeah. a certain kind of, of uh, rock and roll oriented social uh, 
hysteria. Yeah. So you have a lot of kids who really have never suffered racism at all. Well, not once. They just like, when I was going teaching school, they used to read The Wretched of the Earth by their swimming pools, these, the sons and daughters of these black doctors and stuff in LA. <laughs> and then they would feel oppressed. <laughs> and they would come, and, come to school and they would scream and holler at white kids for three or four years. And the white kids would say, okay, that's what, it, that, that's what going to school is today. And I'm going home. But uh, I, I find it that what happens is that if I talk about this, a lot, I'll get a lot of derision in public and a lot of agreement in private. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will come up to me and say, Crouch, you know, I, that's true, man, but you know, these students say, I might lose my job if I took a position like that. You know, I'm almost up for tenure. I, I could not, you know, blah, 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 you know. And, or, you know, or you'll have, or I remember I taught school not too long ago in a situation in some kids in Michigan. And the first thing I said was, I said, we're not gonna have in this lit class any moments where any kids from Detroit are gonna jump up on the table and start ranting and raving at the white kids in the class about slavery because Michigan wasn't a slave state. <laughs> Michigan sent troops to the Union Army. They fought under Sherman. Sherman helped get us off the plantation for good. So these are not the white people to rant and rave at. Because they're not just, you know, furthermore, less than 1% of the white people ever had slaves anyway. Speaking of um, public versus private, I'd like to ask you a question about the media. And let me first address this question uh, to you, Betty. Mm -hmm. What responsibility do you feel the media has in covering race relations and bias incidents? I, I think the uh, coverage about uh, uh, the ethnic communities or different uh, groups is probably limited to the readership and their interest. I think you have to build that interest. Uh, one of the things I know that USA Today did, and I think they are the ones with most uh, minority journalists on the staff. They just made it an arbitrary thing that above the fold every week they would have featured a picture of someone who was not like my husband, a wasp. Uh, and at first, everybody in the newsroom thought they couldn't do it. They just couldn't find somebody to put up there uh, of color or of a different ethnic background. And the management decided, we're going to do this. And now I think you'll feel fine. It's automatic, that it's easy if you look for it. If you want to do something, it'll be there. But I think that we've gotten, we don't have the habit of looking for those stories mm -hmm. about people who are a little di a bit different, simply because so many of the journalists uh, look alike. But I think this is gonna be changing. And I think that uh, with the, I think when I first came to America, everybody looked the same in advertisements, in uh, everything. And I agree with you. Uh, I didn't believe that I couldn't be president because there was no Chinese president or because I, there was no women president, but it was part of the myth that I think that was our unifying culture, which now perhaps I hope you, you are even more pathologically optimistic than I am, I think. <laughs> 
Herman? Well, I think it's a question that, it's a great day for asking that question, especially after the primary fight mm -hmm. we've had in New York City. Mm -hmm. The truth is that the media is a business, a profit-making business. We have a media war going on in New York City. Uh, the Daily News and the Post are trying to survive. Newsday is trying to take it all away from them. And uh, columnists uh, say very clearly they're not interested in the facts. They're interested in being controversial. And of course, television needs to have uh, sound bites, and they need to have a demonstration, the demonstration du jour. And one of the reasons Al Sharpton is so successful is because he realizes you got the same 150 people, nobody ever keeps track of them. As long as they're marching in some cause, they will get coverage in television. So the television, uh, newspapers, radio, uh, if you listen to talk radio, you have uh, absolutely opposite points of view on, uh, on 770 and 1190, whether it's ABC, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Bob Grant or some of the people on WLIB, where you have, uh, in effect, hate radio going on today in New York City. Uh, the people uh, in the media are not interested and never have been interested if you read the books and uh, in, 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 in the truth or falsehood, they are interested in selling newspapers and unfortunately racial polarization, demonstrations, uh, turmoil sells newspapers and that is what is being covered. And uh, I don't, I mean, we can talk about responsibility in the abstract, but uh, you pick up the newspapers you will, and the list watch television, you will see it does not exist, exist in reality. Stanley? Well, you know, I, I omitted the village voice because, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I try to hide under the bed when somebody suggests that I really believe what they have in that paper most of the time. But um, I think that there's a, see, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an enormous lead. There's a, there's a great distance between the way people actually are in New York and the way people and whether the way media and certain politicians pretend that people in New York are. For instance, uh, I was trying to get a politician at one point to make something of the fact that I had, I had seen these events uh, take place that were really contrary to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to this cauldron of racial animosity that New York is often depicted as. And one of them was, well, there was this white woman who was on subway and somebody snatched her purse and these two young black guys and a Hispanic guy ran, captured the guy, got the woman's purse back, boom, she was there. Not, then there was a situation where there were a couple of, there was some black guy on Staten Island was being chased by yet another group of Italian guys, as they call themselves. He runs past the pizza parlor to two Italian guys, as they call themselves, in the pizza parlor come out, they help him black guy fight off the mob, and then that was that. Then there was a recent incident, well, the incident took place within the last year where uh, some Hasidic guy was in Brooklyn, he went into a store, he left his kids in a van, the van caught on fire. Somehow, a couple of the black kids with those strange haircuts with stuff, <laughs> broke the door down, ran the risk of the, the, being blown up with the van, saved the guy's kids. Now. I think that's the way people in New York, by and large, actually do live. Now, I don't mean that there's not that fake New York hostility that you see on the subway when everybody's like, 
you know, I mean, they got to wait if they look like it. But, you know, they, I've been here 17 years, and I find that most people aren't really like that. They just are thinking about something. They don't feel like being bothered at that moment. So it's kind of protective coloration. It's more than their real personality. And I think that the, 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 that the problem is that, is that uh, like what, what, like what Herman, is, Herman is saying, is that the, these people will play something up. Like the, like the Sharpton thing is a perfect example. Now, if you're talking about a, the Ku Klux Klan or something, and there's a guy who has 100 followers, they never have the tight shots like they do with the, when they cover Sharpton, which gives you the impression that there are all of these people here. You know, like Sharpton, there'll be a, this small group of people, but they use the, what they call the tight shots so all those people look like more people. Right, now if it's, if it's because they actually, <laughs> Oh, the Negroes are going mad again. But if it's, <laughs> but but if it's, but if it's some white people, they pull the camera back far enough to say, "Aha, a handful of nuts," <laughs> you know. And I think that we have to address that. We have to address that. And uh, I mean, for instance, if like the, like like the Jewish guy that was killed and uh, that was killed recently. I mean, if that had been, if a black, if that had happened to a black guy who was just got caught in the middle of a mob like that and was killed on the street. I mean, we'd still be hearing about that. That would be, that would be the regular course of discussion for WLIB right now. They'd be talking about that on WLIB right now, talking about how a black man walking down the street can still be lynched by bricks and bottles in the street right now, you know. Now, it seems to me that, 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 that we've got to, in order to get past this, I think we have to treat everybody like they're, like they're equal. That is, if somebody black or, or female or whatever they are is a jerk, they just have to get a big J put on a card and they have to walk around holding it. You know, I mean, they, they, can't, they can't get a franchise and say, I'm black, therefore I can, won't, can't hair, carry the jerk placard. If you're a jerk, you're a jerk. And I think that that identity has to come first. I mean. Uh, uh, to close out, like one, often I've made mention of the fact that when, that, when all of that stuff, uh, this is before uh, uh, Derskowitz uh, came out with this thing attempting to, 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 to get Michael Milken off, but initially there was, it, it, when, the, when the scandal on Wall Street was going on, it wasn't described the way we often see crime described when there are people who are not white people. Well, you know, when it would be say, well, three black people a day were arrested for blah, 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 blah. See, when that was going on on Wall Street, they didn't say, today another Jewish uh, stockbroker was accused of insider trading. He was just a crook first. And see, the thing I think is that that's what we have to, we have to do that to liberate that attitude within all the communities themselves. That is, that, is that, that a criminal should firstly and foremostly be a criminal. You know, that's the, that's the person's real identity first. The ethnicity is just, that's just uh, some window dressing. The real thing is that the person is a crook. And I think that like somebody like, like Al Sharpton, he's not a black leader, he's a demagogic fool. <laughs> An opportunist, first. You know, he's that first. And if he were in any other community with that kind of personality, he'd be the same thing. He just happens to ply his trade you know, in Brooklyn. But believe me, if he was white and in Georgia or something, he'd have some guys with some sheets or something running around for him, you know? And I mean, that, and that's the kind of thing that we've got to get to because, I, and I think that we're, 
we're not making it because people don't want to really call this stuff out the way they really see it. Thank you. I'd now like to discuss the subject of leadership. And Herman, I'll address uh, this question to you first. What are the qualities that go into making a forceful and effective ethnic leader? Well, the problem I have is with the word ethnic leader, because you see, since we are not a gorgeous mosaic, but a very polarized city, what happens is that ethnic leaders tend to be pushing the particular agenda which makes the most sense in their particular ethnic group. And that today is a very polarizing situation. That's one of the problems I've had with Professor Jeffries as a member of the board of trustees of CUNY, uh, that he takes multiculturalism, which is a great idea. We want to have a curriculum of inclusion to get the background of all different kinds of people. But then he turns it into uh, not only uh, uh, Afrocentrism, which is okay, but against being against Europeans. And uh, what happens is that the ethnic leader today, and by the way, he gets thousands of kids coming to his lectures at colleges all over the country, Professor Jeffries. Uh, and you get some Hispanic leaders who will take bilingual, bicultural education, which is supposed to be bilingual, meaning English and another, and they make it monolingual, see? And, um, and, and this appeals to the more radical elements of the particular group. So when you say ethnic leadership, you get into difficulties because those tend to be the ethnic leaders that we have today. Uh, the better approach would be leaders who have a particular ethnic background, but who work to bring about uh, a, the, the having all of the different people working together rather than dividing them. The problem today is that we have too many ethnic leaders who are out uh, to polarize and who get a very substantial audience because we have a media that is polarized. The, as I mentioned, radio is the best example. Those you mentioned, I'm involved with a radio station, radio stations are totally polarized by industry. You appeal uh, to bigots of one kind or another. And you know that this guy is going to do this from uh, 12 to 3 or 3 to 10 in a different station. And I can give you the names of the stations which have a particular appeal. And everybody knows what the uh, political point of view, and that means in most cases, the racial and ethnic point of view is of that particular person and who the guests are going to be. So uh, the question of having ethnic leadership is one of the biggest problems that we have in New York City today. Thank you. Stanley? Well, you know, I, I, I was recently in the, uh, my mother re recently had a, a massive stroke and I had to go see her in, uh, in Texas in, in a Herman Hospital in Houston. And what I was struck by watching these people deal with her, was, I mean, it was, a, she's 74 and it was a situation where uh, if they didn't have this extremely advanced technology and all of this, these uh, people who were very, very serious doing what they have to do, she just would be dead. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so what I was struck by when I was in the hospital, and this is like as serious as it can get, because I mean, this is, these are people who are working in a life-death situation 24 hours a day. 
And I was looking at the staff. I mean, there was a guy there who was one of the doctors was a guy from from Nigeria. There were uh, I met uh, another doctor from Pakistan. There were whites from the south. There were black people there from the south, and they were and they were working in a very serious manner. They all knew what everybody else's particular line of expertise was or area of expertise was. And I saw something going on right there in the middle of Texas that struck me as as something that's that is is, is is happening in the United States every day all the time that's not being addressed. I mean I mean if we were to go by what a lot of these these opportun these ethnic opportunists try to say, what I saw in that hospital with with all of these with people from every ethnic group, every general ethnic group in the United States was working <coughs> in the hospital, either as a doctor or as a nurse or a technician of some sort. Then then that kind of cooperation and the saving of these various people's lives and these operations and taking care of the blood and thinning the blood and giving them these different kinds of drugs and monitoring them and all those kinds of things, that couldn't be done. And I really believe that that's happening almost all the time, every day across the United States, south, north, east, and west. But it seems to me that uh, uh, we, we're, for, we're going for a con job a lot of times because we have come to, we have allowed ourselves to be convinced by, 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 by a handful of people that there's something so fundamentally wrong with the way we have done whatever it is that we're doing, that this is what we deserve. And so people walk around and they go through all of the, they, they have these the proverbial dark nights of the soul about the future of America. And I don't really worry about it. I don't really worry about it because I really think people can see through that. And I think that there's, I think that, that, that the problem we have, that we've had in New York for a while is that we haven't had enough people to really stand up against a number of these things. Like, for instance, when Roger Green in Brooklyn came up out against Sharpton, Mason, and Maddox, it was interesting to me that he was in the press one day and he kind of swam like a brick in the papers, you know I mean? He, if you didn't see him on the surface for about two seconds, he was in the bottom quick. Now, he was saying something that was very, very important during the Tawana Brawley case, which, which proved to me that that 150 people or so that follow Al Sharpton are insane, <laughs> is that to be connected, now that's one of the biggest frauds of our time. And the fact that these three guys could even show their faces in the state of New York, not just the city, is amazing to me after that. You know, and Green called those people out on that very early on. It seems to me that, that if we had more responsible media, people like that would, be, would, 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 would really take a larger position during, 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 during these crises because they're obviously not afraid of standing up to demagoguery. And I think that there are a lot of people who are like that, but they don't, I don't think that the people in the media, going back to what Herman was saying, I don't think that they make the same kind of press. You know, they're all kind of people um, who are really doing very serious work in a lot of poor communities right now. There's this girl uh, I saw in McNeil Lair who's got this thing, Teaching America, uh, Teaching Americans, who's, who's gotten 1,100 you know, Blue Ribbon students from uh, 
you know, the University of Chicago, Harvard, the SC, et cetera, to go into places like the, like the South Bronx, like Compton, California, like the South Side of Chicago for two years and teach. And those are the very, those people are the ones who are doing the real work that we need to be done. But, uh, that's not as, but it's not incendiary work. It's hard and it's grueling, but I think that that's what's going to get it done. Thank you. Betty, getting back to leadership. I really find myself, before I started, before I came here tonight, I was saying to Winston, I said, what happens if I'm faced with people who, who are, shall we say, a little bit more extreme than than my fellow uh, panelists today. And I was really worried. And I wonder, as I was hearing, we're really essentially saying the same thing tonight. I don't know whether he picked us for this or whether we are more representative, as you say, uh, than we know. But one of the things that make you feel, as I did, I said, you know, I wrote this thing and I thought, if I'm gonna get up there and make a fool of myself and everybody's gonna yell at me and, and everything else, can I stand up here? But I wonder if it's because I have been reading the newspapers, following the TV stories, uh, and perhaps we should just talk about these things a lot more with one another. It, we don't have a chance to. And I must say that this proves to me that I didn't have any idea of how this panel would go. I was really worried about getting up, as I have sometimes in, in college campuses, where I feel so totally out of it, as if I have not lived in America, the same place that everybody else has grown up in. Thank you. The uh, final question, before we'll hear from you, the audience, and so we'll begin with you, Stanley. If you were mayor of the city of New York, <laughs> this was terrible. <laughs> uh, what would you do to improve uh, the situation on this subject matter? Well, um, I would do a couple of things. One of the things is that is that I would attempt to create a. Uh, a, a very strong relationship between the uh, some of the most uh, crime-ridden communities and the police. Um, I think that that uh, a one of the problems of organ organizing, because see, I was involved in organizing and Friends of SNCC and stuff in the early '60s, and one of the problems that you have organizing now for in, in ways that can 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 resolve. Over periods of years, a lot of the problems that people have now is that a lot of people can't leave their buildings. They're really afraid because of the crack wars and all of the drugs and stuff. They're actually, they're prisoners in their house after dark. So you can't have, you know, a meeting at a church four, five or six blocks away because the people are afraid to go out of their buildings. And I think that there are, I, I would try to get, the, one of the things I would try to do is get the, is get the local leadership and the police aligned and I would try to get the uh, and I would try to make it um, uh, then I would move to try to try to figure out ways to if, if there were ways that we could use all of the techniques that have been developed in things like Peace Corps and others to really try to hit 
uh, a lot of these schools where kids are not being educated, if there are, if, if there are, are specific kinds of, of, uh, of teaching techniques that we could use to, to deal with this. I would try to figure out ways to set up, uh, uh, I try to get, get college, college students and other people to volunteer to, to set up uh, uh, carpools or, or um, uh, subway pools or whatever it is to get a lot of these kids to places where they actually could study so that there would be people who would be responsible for taking care of them between, say, uh, 3 o'clock and 8 o'clock, if that was the time that they could be out. Because see, a, lot, a lot of what we've got to get done has got to be done with, 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 with educating people. I would, like, I would try to get, uh, create, find situations where we could, where, 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 there would, where there would be ways that, the, that common problems that people have across, across race, class, and age groups could be, could, be, could, could be addressed publicly. In other words, I would like to know um, what people who are 70 years old who live in the Bronx think about living in New York at that age as opposed to the way people in Staten Island at that age think about it. So I'd like to try to find ways to, to create as many forms of commonality and, 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 and elevate the whole proposition of human issues because see, it doesn't see it, if if you're afraid to go out of your house, it doesn't make any difference whether you call yourself a Puerto Rican or a Jew or Italian or Chinese or Japanese or or Korean or an African or whatever it is. If you can't go to your corner store at 8:30, you're somebody who's trapped. It, that other part really is secondary. You know, so, you know I, I don't think somebody's going to say, "I feel worse because I'm a Jew and I can't go to my store." <laughs> Or I feel worse because I'm a Korean and I can't go to my store. And so I think that those kind of things, see, it's, uh, and, uh, because I think that there are issues that are beyond the, 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 the ethnic particulars. And you know, like what Herman was talking about earlier, uh, if you, I mean, we cannot, we just can't allow people to get out of these schools. I mean, we can't, we can't treat people like they're made out of marshmallows. You know what I mean? I mean, the reason why the human race is on the face of the earth now is because over perhaps two million years, we went through a whole lot to get to here. You know, so I mean, we can deal with a whole lot. I mean, you know, I mean, people survived Paul Pot, they survived Adolf Hitler, they survived Idi Amin, they survived the Black Plague, they're going to survive AIDS, they survived the influenza plagues. People can do a lot of stuff, you know, but we got to stop treating them like they're a bunch of little, little. I would like to say, uh, what was the word I'd like to <laughs> I want to try to find a word that's not uh, insulting to any particular group. Anyways, does that work? <laughs> you know. Uh, Thank you. Um, and I think that, that, I think we have to have, you know that thing that they started talking about, it, 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 I mean, it got commercialized on the talk, talk radio and TV, but, but that, that tough love proposition, however, uh, Hallmark card sentimentalized it became on these TV shows. That idea is the one I think we got to bring back in, you know. And I think that we, until we get to that, we're not going to be able to do anything because somebody's sitting there. You have people in different groups, and somebody says something that's really stupid, and then there are five people, and four of them are trying to figure out how to say that this person is a fool <laughs> without offending him or her on the basis of their religion their uh, point of national origin, 
their neighborhood or something like that. And if I was if I was in a, if I was in a, in a position of power, I would be I would I would try to dissolve all of the fake differences and get to the things that could that could make this the the, the remarkable quality of the civilization of New York rise to a few more levels. Okay. Thank you. Betty, if you were mayor. Sixty-nine, seventy-three. <laughs> <laughs> or, man, recently we've had um, building strikes and everybody has to, and everybody has to, have to uh, get down a building and pass out the mail together, take out the garbage together, run up the elevator together. It was the first time, really, that I had my neighbors. I didn't know who they were. And I think about, for instance, uh, San Francisco earthquake or the blackouts here in New York. Those are the times when we know that we have to pull together and that we are part of the same community. And also, perhaps, if I were mayor, I would just turn out the lights in the city every now and then <laughs> so that we would have to hold out our hands to each other and help each other. And at that time, in the night, we wouldn't notice all those superficial things that really don't matter. Because if New York City is not the first universal city in the world for the 21st century, I don't know uh, what other city it should be. And we have to make it, because the rest of the world is solid. The whole world is becoming urban. People are traveling across borders, trading. We're linked to everybody. And I think, I agree with you, we've done a pretty good job here uh, in many ways. But I think the media, or is it uh, the times that makes us look at the downside more than the upside? I have a friend who came from China, who came from actually Tibet. And he was here visiting. He had never been out of Tibet. And he came here to, to uh, New York. And when he went back, I asked him, what was the first thing he wanted to do? And he said, anybody who comes from China, from Tibet, from Mongolia, to the United States, in the city, they have to go to the session. And I was amazed that this has been repeated to me over and over and over and again by people who are card-carrying communist members for the last uh, 50 years of their life. They can't do without that. And I think the lady is in our harbor, and I think we should remember that. Thank you. Herman, I'm tempted to ask not if you were mayor, but when when you are mayor, what would you do? 
Well, I have enough experience so I can put down to one word, and that is to insist that we have standards. Because you see, when Roger Green speaks out against uh, Sharpton and Madison, he's, nobody pays attention. But if the mayor speaks out and insists that we all work together, people will pay attention. We need the mayor, you know, she recognized, and when I was deputy mayor, I prepared a list of about 30 areas in the city which are potential, have potential for explosion any day. In Tremont Avenue in the Bronx, we have problems between African-Americans and Italians. In East Harlem, it's between Puerto Ricans and African-Americans. In Lower East Side, it's Jews and Puerto Ricans. Crown Heights is Jews and African-Americans. But you have to get people ready to move in long before anything happens. The mayor has to insist that the leaders of all those communities work on a day-to-day -day basis so that you don't come in when the riot takes place and then have rocks thrown at you. You have to insist that if Koreans are discriminated against, you will put a stop to it. If you have a special prosecutor for Howard Beach, then you should have a special prosecutor for Crowd Heights. Give the same uh, attention to the problems. You have to have standards in education that, uh, and, and by the way, I don't say this because of this audience. And when I've talked in, in black audiences and Puerto Rican audiences, and I said, and I say, if I'm elected mayor, I'm going to flunk your kids, they all cheer. Because they don't want their kids to be passed along without being able to learn. People of all backgrounds believe in having standards. Uh, without going into much detail, we cannot abandon any part of the city. And it's not trying to blame the federal government that we don't have enough money because, for example, in rebuilding the city, the cheapest thing we can do is to rebuild the city. Because, for example, in the South Bronx, in Charleston, it doesn't cost billions of dollars. Uh, we have the uh, streets, we have the sewers, we have the subways, we have the parks, police stations, fire stations. All that happened was that housing burned down. If you restore housing, Housing is never paid for in a one year to get a mortgage for 25 or 30 years. You get the banks who make so much money from the bonds that the city issues and from the deposits of the city insist that they provide mortgages and build uh, uh, one-story housing or three-story housing. And once you restore the housing, the neighborhood becomes uh, an instant neighborhood. You don't need huge amounts of money. But if we abandon the neighborhoods, we are really abandoning millions of people in the city. The mayor has got to insist that we have standards and that no part of the city shall be abandoned. Thank you. It's now 9.30, and what we will do for the next 20 minutes is afford you the opportunity to ask uh, questions of our distinguished panel. They told me there should be a microphone on the floor. Is there a microphone there? Well, we have good acoustics here. All right, so I will uh, call on you. The lady who has her hands up right here in the aisle. Yeah. And if you can stand, please, so we can hear you.
yes, but you know we get blamed for all the groups, and it's, uh, uh, as far as uh, as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter whether the Puerto Ricans or Dominicans or Colombians or Peruvians. And, uh, everybody considers them to be Puerto Ricans. Uh, I didn't go into all the complications, but for example, uh, we now have a growing migration from Central America where the people who are coming here are neither white or black or mixed, they're pure Incas males. And uh, they say they're Puerto Ricans. And uh, they don't, uh, we don't deny it. But the truth is that it's another topic I could go into for a long time. We have a huge migration of people coming in from Latin America to New York City. In the last 20 years, we have 400,000 Dominicans, mostly illegals. And the Dominican consul tells me there'll be another 400,000 coming in the next five years. We have 200,000 Colombians. For the first time, we're getting Mexicans coming in. Uh, we, you, they used to stop in Chicago. And Central Americans. That's because we get involved in things like invading the Dominican Republic and, and uh, overthrowing the government of Panama. And therefore, all of the problems somehow end up in New York City. Actually, Puerto Ricans have an advantage because they're citizens. The big problem is the other Hispanics who are not citizens, who are the most mistreated people in the city today. They work in sweatshops. And did you know that today we have more illegal sweatshops in New York City than in the year 1907 when the famous fire took place? Uh, they work in an underground economy where they don't even get paid the minimum wage. So there are huge problems in the city that we haven't even begun to talk about because nobody realizes what kind of city we have. When I campaign in the streets of New York and the candidates for the presidency recognize how young the people of New York City are. You know, the median age of the Irish community in New York City is about 65. The median age of the Guatemalan is 16. And uh, the median age of most of the immigrants is quite young. So we have an entire population that uh, nobody has even been uh, recognized that they exist today. And I will repeat the question so people can hear. Yeah, over there. Did everyone hear the question? No? No? Okay. Uh, the question was, so why hasn't anyone on the panel addressed uh, the issue surrounding Arthur Schlesinger's uh, Jr.'s book on the balkanization of America? The rest of the commentary I'll let the panel respond to. Uh, Stanley, why don't you go first? Well, you know, I, I, I thought about that book and I started to make mention of, of it. But, uh, I mean, we do have to remember that a lot of this stuff that we're seeing, we saw that already. So, I mean, the thing, that's, the, the thing that 
that I find fascinating about the, the way that people respond to people like Glenn Jeffries and that is that they're acting as though this is the first time this happened. See, this is see the thing that all we're seeing is a is a is a is a repeat on that level anyway of the of of the black power rhetoric of the late 60s, which by the middle 70s had largely dissolved because it didn't work. Now the thing is, is see, see, one of the things that Betty pointed out is, see, I'm not arguing that there aren't people who are talking about, you know, I want to be, uh, I, I hate the United States, I can't stand it, et cetera. See, I, I was saying to somebody recently that I've noticed that all these people who hate the United States who want to be exactly what their ethnic identity really is, they're not people like they're not like those people who love Paris and hate the United States and move to Paris. You know, they want to be Africans in Brooklyn. You know, which to me suggests that it's it, to some extent it's a fraud. What I see, what I think is actually happening is that a lot of these people, like I was saying earlier, they want an ethnic franchise that's based on a certain kind of a career. They want a department at Columbia. They want a certain kind of uh, deal to be made with the city so that they get certain jobs in certain kinds of sectors. They want a kind of, uh, they want, they, see they don't really, like they don't, they don't want to go back to Moscow, they don't want to go back to Beijing, they don't want that. What they want is they want to be able to say that my identity means that I should get something guaranteed to me that nobody else can get, which is what I was talking about earlier. But I think that when we look at, uh, uh, the stuff Betty was talking about when we, I mean, we see in the mass images of America something very, very different than what these people talk about. So, like, I've heard over and over that we get all of these negative images of black people in mass media. Now, where are they? Where are they? I mean, there's a rap song, quote unquote song, about. Uh, called Burn Hollywood Burn by Public Enemy, in which they're ranting and raving about Hollywood. But when you turn on, on television, I mean, where are these negative images that these white people are making of these black people that they're talking about? I don't see them. The most negative imagery you see on, on, on television about black people are black-made videos on MTV and on, and on Black Entertainment Network. Now, that's the ugliest, most, most repulsive stuff about black people you're gonna see. And white, I mean, if white people actually made those, boy, we'd really hear, we'd really never be able to hear the end of that, you know. But I don't think we have to worry about those people. Those, those people have always arisen. I mean, they're, they're one of the burdens of democratic society because you have freedom of speech. And I mean, if you wanna, I mean, you have, I mean, you can get up and say, I hate Jews, I hate, I, I hate midgets, I hate fat people, I hate Puerto Ricans, I hate this. And there'll be some other people, there'll be a little group, little cluster around you. But I mean, billions of people love Michael Jordan across the line. I mean, he's probably the most popular athlete we've ever seen. I mean, you've got, you've got uh, black mayors in, in almost every major city in the United States. You've got a woman who's the governor of Texas of all places. You know, so I mean, so what I mean is, I see that the, the country itself is not swallowing that, and I think that's why those people become progressively hysterical, because even though they can get some media attention, the, the it, and, and finally, see, with with ethnic groups, it's kind of like rock and roll, you know. That is, I'm talking about so-called minority groups. It's like the fact that, you know, like the kid who buys a guitar and turns it up to 10 to drive his mother and father crazy. 
Well, see, what, they, what the black kids do is they pay Louis Farrakhan $17,000 to come to campus to drive the white people crazy. He's like a, he's like a, 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 you know, he's like a political version of a rock concert. The white people go, oh, he's leaving. And, you know, instead of people saying, turn it down, turn it down. It's like, it's like oh, that man, he's so insane. And then the, the black people go, ah, we got him, we got him. You know, but I mean, they're not... They don't believe like he believes that white people were invented 6,000 years ago by a mad scientist on the island of Patmos. You know what I mean? They don't believe that. They're not going to join his organization. You know what I mean? They're not going to join his organization and then not be able to stand up and bump and grind all those records that they like to play at their parties. They're not going to do that. They're not going to wear those dull suits with red ties like, the, like those guys in the Nation of Islam. Those girls who are, who are standing up there going when Farrakhan says something insulting about white people, yeah, yeah, they're not going to get in that organization, you know, which has like an 1802 attitude towards females. They're not going to do any of that. They're just going to enjoy two or three hours of Louis Farrakhan lambasting white people, and the white people are going to sit there and go, they're still crazy, aren't they? <laughs> you know, and that's about all it's going to be. You know, so I don't really think it's something to, I don't think, see, if, if, if it ever gets to the kind of thing we saw in Berlin in 1933 or something, which, I mean, it's so, 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 so far from that, you know, it's so far away from that. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, everybody sees Hitler whenever they see somebody getting up saying something and three people stand up and agree with him. You know, as Adolf has, has returned again, but I mean, you know, I'm a very big, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a buff on the Third Reich, and I think we are so far removed from that kind of threat at this point. I don't think we really have much to worry about. It's like, it's just an irritation that goes with a democratic society. Sir? Yes, I would support the bill. Betty, any comments? I didn't quite Oh, there's understand. a bias. There's a uh, bill which the state assembly has passed, but which the Senate refuses to pass. That would make it a uh, separate crime uh, to, when it's bias-related. And uh, the main reason the state Senate hasn't supported it is because uh, they're against homosexuals. And uh, that's the hang-up that's going on, the usual fight between the Assembly and the Senate. Uh, now, of course, they also argue it might be difficult to tell whether it's bias-related, but it really isn't that difficult to tell that it's bias-related. So uh, to the extent that it might be helpful, uh, and we don't know, but I, I think it's, uh, it's a value to have the bill, because the reality is we do have increased polarization. And, uh, and then certainly uh, against uh, homosexuals and, and lesbian people, as well as uh, people of different backgrounds. So to the extent it might give people pause, I certainly think it's worth uh, enacting into law. And I want to say I did bring up the question of uh, this uniting America by Professor Schlesinger. I was talking about Professor Jeffries and multiculturalism. That's been the problem, the fight between Schlesinger and Jeffries. And uh, what I said before is that we have to oppose it 
You may remember I was the one who led the battle against Jeffries at CUNY. We finally got him removed as chairman, but it took a long time because there were too many people on the board of trustees who felt it was okay for a chairman of a, uh, of a committee, of a, of a department at CUNY to go around attacking Jewish people, Italian people, and other people. My point is that it's not okay, and that's what Schlesinger says, that if you allow this kind of division, it isn't going to go away because unfortunately, it isn't, as Stanley said, it's not the community control idea of the 70s. What is going on now is that there is sought to uh, be established intellectual justification for this polarization, uh, and that's what uh, Jeffrey says. You have to prove me wrong when I say that uh, that uh, the Jewish people were the leaders of the slave trade, uh, and you have to prove me wrong when I say that the Jews and the mafia conspired uh, to portray the, back, the blacks in a black and a bad light in Hollywood. And that's crazy. I mean, he's the scholar. He has to prove himself right, the other way around. But uh, uh, so that. Uh, because there's a pseudo-scholar justification, the danger of the polarizing agents is greater today in the 90s than it was in the 70s. I'd like to say something. Yeah, sure. Don't. I think that one of the things that what Herman is talking about, too, that has to be addressed is that, see, and we, Tomas Mann had to address it with, with, with his colleagues in Germany in the, in the late 20s and their, early 30s, is that unfortunately a lot of people on campuses are really cowardly types. See? I mean, I mean, school teachers, they're a lot of punks. You know, I, that's really what it is. Because when I, when I say this, this is what I mean. If the white students said, demanded that they bring a Louis Farrakhan think-alike from the opposite end, who wanted to get $17,000, right? If they demanded that and they said and that they want to spend $17,000 in students' care, then all of these black teachers and stuff, these people in the ethnic departments and, the, and all of that, they would all be out there protesting the bringing on of this nut, whomever the nut might happen to be, somebody from the American Nazi Party or whomever, right? Now, what I want to know is when are we going to get uh, uh, equal action within the ethnic community or the ethnic departments them, themselves. That is, why should a grown man or woman who's a school teacher at Columbia or the University of Chicago or, or the University of Pennsylvania sit still and let the black student union demand to bring Louis Farrakhan on campus without at least making a verbal protest against that? You know. Like to me, I mean, why don't they do it? Because they're afraid they might lose their jobs. I mean, it's just, and they're punks. You know what I mean? I don't really, I mean, that's one of the reasons why that goes on. I mean, I've met people for years who don't respect Lynn Jeffries. They think he's a fraud. He's a doctor. He's been, there. He's, he's been at city, uh, city, uh, CCNY for 20 years. He hasn't written anything, you know? I mean, he walks around with these little robes on and these things and all these things on his head and rants and raves. And I mean, these people, he's a joke, but these people won't stand up and say that he's a fraud. And I think that that's the big step that's got to be made. Like, see, a lot of that, that's where the balance has, has to be taken. That people have to stand up and say, look, this jerk doesn't represent me. You know, I met people, I met this black woman who taught in the history department at CCNY. She, she can't stand Jeffries. But I don't know if she's ever publicly, and she's a, she teaches history. I don't know if she, she's ever publicly taken a position against her. As a matter of fact, the faculty senate at CCNY came out in support of Jeffries, believe it or not. 
and many of the trustees, including some trustees, who are Jewish, voted in support of Jeffries well, because see, they were afraid of students rioting. Right. And that's, that's what's been going on. We will take uh, two more questions. Is there a question directed to Ms. Bellord? That doesn't matter. I'm in Yes. The no, no. <laughs> Betty, Betty, Betty. Yes. The lady in the back. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah. Yes, I think I, I'm just going to just to uh, just give you a very brief uh, overview of the question. Really, that Ms. Ballard has been asked to comment on the whole subject of uh, Japan or Asian bashing as it relates to present society and also to the uh, uh, presidential campaign. I think that it has been proven that um, obviously there are small pockets when the, uh, the Japan bashing uh, can flare up. But on the whole, I'm rather amazed. The, uh, at the good sense of the American people. I think when Kerry had that uh, hockey uh, puck um, uh, advertisement in which uh, was a Japan bashing sort of issue, uh, that it did not get him a lot of votes. And that most people know uh, as a result of the uh, President's trip to Japan, I don't think the sympathy was at all with, with some of our automakers, and that there was recognition on the part that we also have a problem with competitiveness. I think it has to be just education. Uh, but I have a, a grudging feeling that most of us who go into the stores and buy things, we think that the consumer have rights, and that the things that we buy will, will explain to us why the market is the way it is better than some of our politicians who have tried to do so. Okay. Uh, last question. Yes. Could you stand so we can hear you? Yeah. Well, I can give right, you a Herman, specific Herman, example. I, I just want to repeat the yeah. question. Okay. Now, uh, Mr. Bedillo has been asked to comment. Are there any other suggestions or examples in terms of uh, increasing uh, racial harmony or increasing the peace uh, here in New York? Yes, we, we have a lot of experience in these problems. For example, uh, many years ago in East Harlem, when there was a very large Italian community, Italian kid killed a Puerto Rican kid, then a Puerto Rican kid killed, killed an Italian kid. So we got together at LaGuardia House and we formed the Italian-Puerto Rican Good Neighbor Committee, including uh, uh, 
50 Puerto Rican leaders and 50 Italian leaders, and then we began to develop programs for that particular community. We set up, uh, we found, for example, that at LaGuardia House, Italian kids were playing ba basketball by themselves and Puerto Rican kids were playing basketball by themselves. So we got them to uh, work together in joint teams. We sent Italian kids to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican kids to Italy. When we heard that there was going to be a problem at Ben Franklin High School, we called each other and all of us went out into the street before 3 o'clock. When the kids came out, and we didn't go as Puerto Ricans or Italians, but working together. When the kids saw the, the adults of the Italian and Puerto Rican community as leaders, made it very difficult for them to be fighting each other. So there are many such programs that have been developed over the years, depending upon which community it is, so that you have leaders ready to move. And by the way, that also works into what Stanley said about uh, relations with the community, because every kid knows where drugs are being sold, and every kid knows which building is getting burned down. But when you get the community leaders of the different groups into the street, you begin to depolarize the situation. The answer is we have to begin to develop the community leadership of each of the groups on a regular year-round basis so that we don't wait to the, for the time when there is a problem. And to answer, for example, if I was the mayor and you have Arp Sharpton with the same 150 people, I call up some of my friends who are ministers and, uh, and, and, and rabbis and priests, and if he has 150 people, I go on a march with 2,500 people, see? So you can organize and you match him. You don't let a guy appear to be a leader because he has control of a small group. By having a leadership group ready to go, you are able to meet uh, most of these situations and be ready to deal with them before the problem arises. Thank you. <laughs> I began the uh, program by commenting on the darkness in our midst, but I would like to thank uh, the panel, not only for such an inspiring and informative presentation and discussion, but for bringing the light of understanding uh, into our midst that indeed the great American experiment will continue, and that is diversity and tolerance in American life. Thank you all for coming.